Good morning, Three Rivers Church. Man, it's good. Uh, it's good to be here this morning. Uh, we're looking at uh, the seven I am statements of Jesus. We've been studying through that for uh, a few weeks. And we're going to continue that today. Uh, in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So if you would join me in prayer, and uh, we're going to get after the text. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you for the powerful gospel that is salvation for everyone who believes. We thank you, Lord, that... Uh, Jesus, you are it. You're the centerpiece. You're the beginning, the middle, and the end. You're everything. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, you would testify to Jesus. I ask that you would break down and break through any and everything that comes before Jesus. We ask you to do a work of surgery in our souls and cause us to see and savor Jesus like we never have before. And we pray that the fruit of that would be beautiful. As a pleasing sacrifice back to you, but also fruit among the nations. As we are global Christians in a global world, for the glory of your name and the advancement of your kingdom, we pray you'd pull that off today in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 14, 1 to 6, the seven I am statements of Jesus. Uh, last Sunday, or last Saturday, my friend Nadim came and uh, he spent Saturday morning with us. He is the imam here at the Islamic Center. And uh, he lectured to us and he interacted with us uh, on the topic of the theology of Islam. And this had multiple purposes. If you, this is your first Sunday with us and you've never been here before and you just heard that, you're thinking, where have I just walked into? Because I don't think I need to be here. You need to understand something. We love Jesus. We love the gospel. We believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that uh, his last last command to us was to disciple the nations. Right? <laughs> That's the mission of the church. A large part of the world is Muslim. Which means you need to know what you're doing. If you want to disciple Muslims. Right? And so we reach out. And we love our neighbor as ourselves. And so Nadim came. Because I go to him and... Uh, and, and he came to share with us about the theology of Islam. And through our interaction and fantastic questions that you guys who came asked, because I gave you some warnings. Remember, I told you, this is my field. I've invited you into my field of evangelism. And so don't wreck it by coming with an agenda and coming because you watched Fox News and thought you knew how to ask a gotcha political question. If you did that, I was going to throat punch you in Jesus' name. Because what's at stake is the salvation of someone who needs to believe and savor Jesus. And so I wasn't going to let you play a political game. And you guys were fantastic. You came as globally savvy people ready to engage with the love of Jesus. And it had impact. It had impact. And I want to thank you for that. And uh, you advanced the gospel and the work of the gospel. And so thank you for that. But we learned how to engage someone from another faith. But one of the things that absolutely stood out in that time was the very clear reality that there are clear distinctives, aren't there? There are clear things for us that matter. Somebody actually asked Nadim if he believed we worship the same God. And I love Nadim's response because it was absolutely 100% honest. And what he said to us, and I will paraphrase for you, is the big problem for Muslims and Christians is Jesus. <laughs> there are many Christians that can't even tell you that. You're right. It, Jesus is the big problem. And for them, it's not a disbelief in Jesus. As a matter of fact, Nadim articulated this belief that I've known for a long time in engaging with Muslims, particularly where we began our work in the world 15 years ago was that Muslims believe Jesus is coming again. He's a prophet, they believe. And He's coming again. And He's going to return and help bring the world in submission to Allah. It's not that they disbelieve in Jesus. They disbelieve the truth about Jesus. Which makes them not Christians. And He was clear about that. Jesus left us, however... No doubt about who He is. No doubt. He was clear about who He is and what He came to do. Jesus is the big distinctive. 
Jesus is the big distinctive. Jesus either attracts or He repels. As a matter of fact, He said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, Whoever is not with Me is against Me. Side note, not in your notes. MitchJolly.com, the notes are available for you there. There's no place for nominal Christianity. You're either on board with Jesus fully and completely, or you're not on board at all. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no partway commitment to Jesus and His people and His kingdom. You're in or you're out. And we say those things as Christians, or should say them because Jesus said them. And what has happened in the West is we have made nominal Christianity normative. And we facilitate it in our fellowships by letting people be nominative, letting them be middle road, lukewarm, and we've made that normal. We've made that okay. We've made that the way it is. Don't ruffle feathers. By all means, don't demand people obey Jesus. God forbid, you know. No. We have made nominative Christianity normal. And Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. And then He said, whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, if you're not involved in my mission of bringing into the kingdom through the preaching of the gospel, the nations, you're actually scattering. You're not helping. That's Jesus speaking. It's not me. It's not my opinion. It's Jesus. And I love how Nadim understands it clearer than most Christians. And that his piety is better than most Christians. In error. And he understands Jesus' message clearly. These seven I am statements put Jesus into the category of either Lord, God, Creator, King of the universe, or... Liar. Or crazy and deranged. Or liar, crazy and deranged. Jesus' words leave us not many options. He truly is either Creator, King, God of the universe, Maker of all things, Ruler of all things, or He's crazy and lying. There's not much room for middle ground with Jesus. And John's intent couldn't be clearer. He stated it. We said this to you at the beginning. He stated His purpose at the end of His writing in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, when John said, here's His purpose. He said, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So in other words, the the gospel writers didn't write down everything. They wrote down what facilitated their intention and being inspired to write. And here's what He said in verse 31. But these are written. In other words, what I just wrote you is so that you may believe that Jesus is a good option and go find another way you like better. No, it's not what he said. These are written so you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in his name. So John's clear on his intent. John is there to present to you what Jesus said and did so that you will believe that he truly is is the way, the truth, and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. So John's intent in recording Jesus' I am statements is very clear. Jesus is the I am. He is the God of the Old Testament. The whole idea that the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, are sort of played against each other. One's happy and gracious, the other one's mean and angry. Jesus is that God. Jude even says it if you read that little book right before Revelation. He says, Jesus, who once led a people out of Egypt. Couldn't get clearer. Jesus, the I Am, is the God of the Bible. And He comes to reveal His glory, to put on display who He is, and to satisfy His own demands by going to the cross and receiving His own wrath for your sin and mine, and being crucified under the burden and wrath 
that He demands and will pour out on those who don't believe, being buried and rising and securing salvation for all who will repent and believe. He is that I am. In the setting of our passage today, it begins in chapter 13, where Jesus sits down with His twelve, and He begins to share with them some very important things. As a matter of fact, the setting of our passage is very important because John's narrative, which has sped along through three years of Jesus' ministry up through chapter 12, now comes to chapter 13 and grinds to a slow motion event for the rest of the book. He speeds through three years quickly and then he gets to chapter 13 and he begins to go into slow motion over the last few hours of Jesus' life and ministry from chapter 13 on. And what we find in chapter 13 is Jesus is about to celebrate the Passover with his closest disciples. And so they've sat down to a meal together. And Jesus, to illustrate servant leadership, has taken off his outer garment and he's begun to wash his disciples' feet and set an example for them on how they are to lead in serving each other. Spiritual warfare is thick in this room. Because we read here in the passage that the devil, this is chapter 13, verse 2, had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to do what he was going to do. So rather than listening to Jesus and paying attention, Judas' mind is somewhere else on the betrayal of Jesus and the enemy is wreaking havoc in the room. Jesus introduces hardship into the theology Jesus reminds him in chapter 13, verse 21. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So we've gone from Jesus, the feeder of 5,000. Jesus, the feeder of 4,000. Jesus, who makes water wine. Jesus, who is God. Jesus, who performs miracles. Jesus, who heals the blind. Jesus, who heals all sicknesses. Jesus, who raises the dead. Jesus, who does all of these amazing things, now says to them, one of you is going to betray me. So you can imagine the, the mood in the room went from happy servanthood to, ooh. And as a matter of fact, you read it, who, who's it, who is it, Lord? And then Jesus takes hardship to a different level because in verse 33, Jesus begins to drop the cross on them. And he says, and it's not like he hadn't warned them, but the time is now. It has approached them. It is there. And He says to them, little children, yet a little while and I'm with you. You will seek Me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. You can imagine. Jesus who's done everything, been everything, just said somebody's going to betray Me and I'm going somewhere you can't come. And you can imagine the upset nature of their soul, which John chapter 14, verse 1, begins to make a little sense there when Jesus says, don't let your hearts be troubled, because now they're troubled. Now they're troubled. Somebody's going to betray you, and you're leaving. What are we going to do? And so Jesus says, don't be troubled. So this festive meal has now turned into a somber occasion in which Jesus now has their attention and needs to instruct them on what to do next. And reveal to them everything they need to know. So when we come to our passage, John 14, <clears throat> 1-6, what do we see? What does it mean? And then we're going to look at some ways we can obey it. So I'm going to read John chapter 14, 1-6, and we'll come back and make our observations. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him. And you have seen Him. So what do we see and what does it mean? I want to point out to you something that really precedes chapter 14, verse 1. And it's our first observation. And it's found in John 13, verse 31 to 38. Being with Jesus is better. And His people have come to delight in being with Jesus. Being with Jesus is better. 
And his people have come to delight in simply being with him. Notice verse 31 to 38. When he had gone out, that is Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while, I'm with you. You will seek me and just as you said to the Jews, so now I say to you also, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where where are you going? Jesus has just given some really clear instruction. Hey guys, i got to go. And I need you to love each other. And what's Peter's question? Where are you going? I mean, Jesus just said, this is how they're going to know your mind by how you love each other. Which is kind of important. Just a little bit, you think? It's a lot important. And Peter's mind's on, where are you going? How? How? What? Who? What? Who? And he just said, love each other. And Peter is so taken with the absence of Jesus, he... He doesn't ask loving one another, what does that look like? How we do that? Would you give us some systematic teaching on what that looks like? Give us a ten point list. Do something. Where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. But you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. You see, it's impossible for creatures made in the image of God to not love the God who draws them near and made them. (laughs) They love being with Jesus. Why would they not? Because the one who knit them together in their mother's womb is there. The eternal God of all creation is with them. They've watched Him do the miraculous. They've watched Him overcome the curse. They've been with Him. They've tasted life themselves. So that when other people were jetting and bolting from Jesus in John 6, Peter's like, I'm not going anywhere. You have life. I'm staying right here. In other words, when Jesus' teaching got hard, they didn't want to leave because they were alive. The life giver, the light giver, the eternal word of God was present. And being with Jesus was better. It's just better. They've come to delight in being with Jesus. And so now, because Jesus has said, I've got to go, that delight has been shaken. It's like, we love being with you, and you're going to go. I'm not happy now. Because being with Jesus was better. It's observation number one. Observation number two. Now Jesus lets them know where comfort is found. Comfort is found in trusting Jesus. Comfort is found in trusting Jesus. Jesus says, John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe also, believe in God. Believe also in me. Comfort is found by trusting in Jesus. This is very important because Jesus does something here grammatically that's it's significant. It says here, and if you're reading the ESV, it will say, believe in God. It's got a semicolon. And then it says, believe also in me. Right here, in this passage, Jesus introduces two statements. And they can be taken grammatically two different ways. One is the indicative. And I know for you who aren't grammar snobs, you have no clue what that means. I'll help you. The other way is the imperative. If you read it as an indicative, it would basically mean this. Belief in God is belief in me. Which is true. But if you take it in the imperative, it would sound like this. Believe in God, believe in me. Both have the same theological implication that Jesus is God. But the imperative jolts these saddened disciples from their funk into action. Because you keep in mind, they love being with Jesus. Being with Jesus is better. But Jesus said, I've got to go away. And they're, huh? And so Jesus says, don't be troubled. Don't, don't let this upset you. Jesus has just introduced hardship to them. He's just introduced suffering to them. And so in this moment of suffering, Jesus jolts them back to action by reminding them, believe in God, believe in me. Trust me. 
Trust me now. Trust me in this moment. Walk with me in this moment. Live with me in this moment. You believed in God? Now, believe in me. Walk with me. I will walk you through this. I believe it's absolutely essential we read that as the imperative. Jesus just isn't making a doctrinal statement. He's making a statement of practice for these disciples who are about to suffer like they could never imagine. Your trust in God, it's there, it's real, but now you also trust me. Walk with me now. Listen, dear Christian, this is an application we won't make when we get to points of obedience, but this is where doctrine matters for you. Because the reality is following Jesus will sometimes get you into difficulty. Sometimes it's active and sometimes it's passive, but following Jesus comes with inherent risks. And what you and I need to know in those moments when things don't work out right, believe in God, believe in me. Trust me, walk with me now. Walk with me step by step with this. Don't leave me. Don't go back. Don't get ahead of me. Walk with me step by step through this. Because the Good Shepherd will walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death and you will fear no evil for He is with you. And His rod and His staff will comfort you. And He will prepare a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He will cause your cup to overflow. So that surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. And you will dwell with Him forever. Walk with me. Believe me now. You see, belief in Jesus isn't some future thing. It's not for tomorrow. It's right now. Do you believe Jesus enough to get out of your mind the next event for the day and be in the present moment with Jesus now? Do you believe in Him enough to walk with Him now in the fog of your thinking that is crowded and clouded with entertainment and tasks and things that have to be done and desires for things that aren't right and good to walk with Him now? Present reality of walking with Jesus. Walking with Jesus, Comfort is found in trusting Jesus. This imperative command is not just for them in that moment. It's also for us today. Walk with me. Trust me. See, these guys would have to let go of a lot of social norms. They're going to have to let go of a lot of family ties. They're going to have to let go of geographical familiarity to trust Jesus. (laughs) There's a lot they're going to have to give up. So Jesus commands them in this moment. Trust Him just like they've always trusted Yahweh. Trust me now. And maybe Jesus this morning, I just, I'm going to say this because I just sense this is from the Lord. Some of you walked in and you needed to hear, you need to trust Jesus right now. You trust Him today. You're going to need Him tomorrow, but you need Him today. Trust me today. Walk with me today just like you've always trusted. Trust me now. You see, this command has the effect of getting their focus off their feelings and back onto the mission. Because now they're all up in their feelings. They're they're, they're dwelling in their feelings. And that's not evil, but it can be disruptive and it can definitely get one off course and off task. And so Jesus' command has the effect of getting their focus now off of their feelings and back onto the mission. Third observation. It's found in verse 2. With the Father, there is abundant room for all who trust Jesus to abide and dwell. And Jesus goes to the cross to make access. John fourteen two. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? This passage, unfortunately, has been misused because of translation challenges from the King James Version. Now, if you're a KJV only person, you might want to plug your ears now. I'm not going to bash it, okay? It's, I'm a translator. i got a master's degree in this stuff, so I think I have a little bit of authority to speak to the translation of the biblical text. If you don't mind, okay? When we come to this passage, unfortunately, this whole idea of having a mansion just over the hillside, and there's a song that, I've got a mansion. I thought I, think I got the tune wrong. Sorry, music people. Just over the hillside. And we have this idea from this passage because in the KJV it's translated in my father's house are many mansions. 
And that word that's translate, translated mansion in the KJV is Monai. And it's translated mansion. And it has led to this idea that in the kingdom, we're going to get mansions to live in. The problem with that is this word Monai is the genitive feminine noun of a word meno. And you're like, I didn't come here for a grammar lesson. Well, that's unfortunate because the Bible's written in language. <laughs> and in order to make sense of language, you have to have a, a, a minor grasp of grammar, like subject, verb, put them together. You know, you have some modifiers along the way. You end a sentence with a period, right? Or a semicolon for two independent clauses that you want to stick together. There's all kinds of good things you need to know. This matters because this little word meno, of which monai is a genitive feminine noun form of, means to remain or dwell. Now this is going to have significance next week because in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he's going to use this word meno 11 different times to describe our relationship to Him. And it means to abide or dwell. It's where we get our concept of the radical life from. To remain or dwell in Christ. And so, this genitive feminine noun form, monai, of meno, doesn't mean mansion. It means to remain or dwell. Thus, the ESV translates it, In my Father's house are many rooms. Because it sounds weird if you say, In my Father's house are many remainings. Or dwellings. Dwelling makes a little more sense. In other words, in the Father's house, there is abundant room for remaining in Jesus. <laughs> in the Father's house, there's abundant room to just dwell in Jesus. Because He's the point. We saw that in verse 31 to 38. They've come to love being with Jesus. And when he says, I gotta go, it's thrown them into confusion and hurt and sorrow. So he says, don't, don't be troubled. You just like, believe God, believe me right now, because in my Father's house is enough room for you to just dwell in me. Then, he says this. If it were not so, like, in other words, if I were lying, if I was lying to you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? It's, it's asking a you know rhetorical question. Of course not. So what Jesus is saying here is there's abundant room with my Father to dwell in me, and I'm going to prepare the ways. Anybody have an idea what he means when he says I'm going to prepare a way? The cross. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross because the cross is the way Jesus satisfies the wrath of God and the justice of God in order to dispense the grace of God to sinners who repent and believe so that they can remain and dwell in Him with the Father forever. And Jesus says, guys, I know I told you I'm going away, but I need you to trust me right now because my Father's house is abundant room to dwell in me and I'm going to make that available to you via the cross. Observation number four. Jesus goes to the cross because He says, I'm going somewhere. Right? I don't have time to do a thing on eschatology right now. We're going to do this thing starting in January. January 7th will be our first Sunday. I'm going to call it First Sunday. Sunday morning is at 9 o'clock. If you want to come do some just doctrinal teaching, we're going to start with spiritual warfare and we're going to just walk through a systematic theology over time. And so just invite you to come to that. So anyway... We'll talk about eschatology, the study of last things. That's kind of important here. Jesus isn't speaking about going somewhere up in the sky at this place we can't see. He's speaking about going to the cross. So Jesus goes where He's going. He's going to the cross. Because that's really John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 is about Jesus going to the cross. So Jesus goes to the cross to make our access. And then He ascends to general the task of bringing all who will repent and believe to abide in Him. Which is why this theme in the New Testament letters is so thick about in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Remember we studied through Ephesians? How many times we saw in Christ, in Him, in Christ. Because that's where He's making access to. So He ascends to general the task of bringing all who repent and believe to abide in Him. And then He sends Holy Spirit so He is with us until He bodily returns. Verse 3. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus goes and he makes access and he promises here that he is going to return and bring us to where he is. Now some argue that this verse is about Jesus' second coming. Some argue it's about Jesus sending the Spirit as he promised later here in chapter 14 and is accomplished in Acts 2. Yes and yes. It's not either or, it's both and. When Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to make room for you to dwell in me with the Father forever and promises to return, it is a promise about His second advent as well as Him coming to us at Pentecost in Acts 2. And He's going to spend the second half of chapter 14 dealing specifically with what He's doing and sending the Holy Spirit to come and dwell with us. Now this isn't about the Holy Spirit this morning. It's not about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But just to summarize, Holy Spirit is Jesus and the Father present with us simultaneously in us by His saving work. So when He promises that He's going to prepare this place and that He's going to come again, He comes to us when He saves us and gives us His Holy Spirit. And He's promising to come again to finish the task of establishing the kingdom. So when He goes to the cross, He makes access. He ascends, and when He ascends, He sends the Holy Spirit, and He promises to return. Observation number five, and we're going to quickly do some application. Jesus is how one abides with and in the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John 14, 4-6. And you know the way to where I'm going. I love how Jesus sets His disciples up, and He always sets us up. He makes these statements. And he welcomes response because it's a teaching moment. He says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Knowing darn good and well, they don't. They do. They just don't know that they know it yet. You know the way to where I'm going. Why? Don't read ahead if you hadn't. Because they know him. (laughs) Because he is the way. So you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas is still kind of stuck in the moment. So Thomas, and I love Thomas' honesty, Lord, we do not know where you're going. So how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is how we abide with the Father. Listen, this is a glorious reality. We're going to hit this in just a moment, some application. Jesus is how we, we know God. He's how we know the Father. He's how we abide with the Father and love the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Here's a little quote for you from F.F. Bruce. He's an old dead guy, but he has good things to say. The way, truth, and life all have relevance. The triple expression emphasizing the many-sidedness of the saving work. Way speaks of connecting or connection between two persons or things. And here the link is between God and sinners. Truth reminds us of the complete reliability of Jesus in all that He does and is. And life stresses the fact that mere physical existence matters little. Jesus is asserting in strong terms the uniqueness and the sufficiency of His work for sinners. Amen. So, how do we obey? Number one, put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. We know what that figure of speech means, right? This idea of holding something back just in case. You know, put, put a few eggs over here just in case this doesn't work out, right? Many of you don't have chickens, so you don't put eggs in a basket. And some of you may have no clue what that means. And Josh said it this morning in mem- membership class. Like, I'm all in. All my chips are on the table, right? If you're a poker person. In other words, you're holding nothing back. Put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. You see, as the disciples would have to let go of much to follow Jesus, Jesus never failed to take care of them. Go all in on Jesus. Simply because and profoundly because Jesus is better. You see, the reality is in the heart of most of us in the West, we have the mistaken idea that somehow we have to hold some things back just in case. Or it's maybe a subconscious value that 
we need to invest our time and our resources and our energy somewhere else because we have different values in the kingdom of God. Sometimes that takes the form of our resources. Sometimes that takes the form of our entertainment. Sometimes that takes the form of our job. Sometimes that takes the form of a hundred different things. But Jesus wanted them to understand when He said, I'm the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. He wanted them to be all in on Him. And I think if you read the New Testament carefully, you read the book of Acts, you read the letters, what you'll see are living examples of what it is to be all in on Jesus. There was nothing they held dear except Jesus. Let me read you a quick little passage here from Luke 18, 18 to 31. I need to speed through. I just hit my 30-minute timer. And so I'm going to go quickly. Luke 18, 18 to 31. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, All these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this. He said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad. For he was extremely rich. And Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one, I want you to listen to this carefully, there is no one who has left house, or wife, or brothers, or parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. There's so much to unpack in that passage, but this one thing I want you to hear. Even the giving up of absolutely everything you have is worth it for Jesus. worth it. And if the kingdom demands that we lay aside things that are supremely good and valuable for the sake of Jesus, it is no error to do so. You see, for those on the field who go to the hard places and work in the hard places to lose a home or to give up a home or to give up the ownership of a home or a car... And to leave their family behind, their loved ones, is no sacrifice. We, we have this mistaken idea that they've given up so much. And our friend will be here October the 1st who works among the people we started working with 15 years ago to share with you the work that God is continuing to do. And we think about the things that they have left behind and the, the relationships. I mean, their parents don't get to help raise their grandchildren. And we think, oh, what a travesty. And what they will tell you and what Jesus will say to you is, that's nothing. That You've given up nothing. Because you have me. And Jesus said, anybody who's given up any of that stuff, listen, will he not receive many times more in this time and age to come eternal life? In other words, Jesus will replace with himself and his precious gifts everything given up for him. Because... You know what? I, I think I said it in, in our, our Radical Life group exchanged lots of texts this week in, in, in one of the statements. And I forget the context. I just remember I hashtagged something in a text stream. And, and, and here's what I said. And these guys will remember. Spirit is thicker than blood. If we say blood is thicker than water, that's not true. Spirit's thicker than blood. Because you know what? You're my family. I got blood relatives who don't follow Jesus and they're not my family like you are. You're my family. So what I've given up to follow Jesus is nothing compared to what He's given me in this life. And to come, eternal life. So in other words, Jesus is better. Put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. Dear Christian, I want you to hear me. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Remember we started out talking about Jesus' own words. You're with Him or for Him. You gather or scatter. There's no such thing as holding on 
to what's behind you and following Jesus. As a matter of fact, in Luke chapter 9, some people came to Jesus and said, Lord, we will follow you wherever you go. And they gave him all these excuses. And Jesus said, anyone who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the kingdom. In other words, put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. It will be no mistake. It will be no error. There is no price paid in this life for the kingdom that isn't worth it. Do you believe that? you really believe that? Because if you believe that, you've got to act on that. Number two, we must preach, teach, explain, and hold firm to Jesus as God and the only way to God the Father. We saw that in an example last Saturday. That's one of the reasons I invited you to come. I wanted you to see what it's like to engage people of different faiths and see the integrity of holding Jesus firm and the fact that you can do that peacefully. And you can do that gently and winsomely. And you need to do that because it's the essence of evangelism and great commission work is to be able to hold your distinctives firmly and be kind while doing it because we trust that Jesus is able to save. I want you to see that, taste that, feel that palpably in the room. Hold that truth. Hold it firmly. Hold it with a tight grip. But do it winsomely and watch Jesus do supernatural things. You see, we embrace and we clearly communicate our distinctives. We trust Jesus' message to be enough to save, though. And we don't deny our distinctives, but we enjoy them and we herald them. Guys, Jesus really is the problem for the rest of the world. He's the problem. This is one of the reasons a Jesus-less Christianity is the norm in Western civilization. You'll hear people all over the political spectrum using Jesus' words as reason and motivation for their political ideology. This past week, former vice presidential candidate Kane used Jesus' teaching as a reason and motivation why political parties ought to be unified. Heresy. Jesus' words had nothing to do with political parties. He spoke about the church that he bought because he's the way, the truth, and the life. But Western civilization has taken Jesus and made him a party line for whatever they want him to be. Dear Christian, you never do that. You hold this truth firmly and you enjoy that distinctive and you teach Jesus properly and you live that out faithfully. And you let other people draw political lines where they may, but you follow Jesus. Then experience, number three, experience Jesus as the way. Your Christianity is experiential too. It's truth and it's experience. It's both and. And I want you to experience Jesus as the way. That is connection between God and redeemed sinners. Take advantage. Listen, listen to me. Listen, I want you to hear this. And I pray the Holy Spirit gives these words life. Take advantage of interacting with the Creator, God, Father, King, Ruler, of kings on earth, take advantage of interacting with God because Jesus has brought you to God. And not only that, when He came and indwelled you with the Spirit, He brought God the Father to dwell in you too. Listen to Jesus' words in John sixteen twenty five to 27 I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf. I want you to hear this. (laughs) For the Father Himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. Jesus said, you're not going to ask me and I'll go to the Father. You go to the Father because He loves you. You need to experience walking with God. It's a supernatural ride. It's what Hudson Taylor called his spiritual secret in the Inland China Mission. He learned to walk with God in the moment and be completely and truthfully and wholly God's instrument in the moment. What do you want right now? And he learned to hear. He learned to hear. He learned to obey. And from that moment, in Hudson Taylor's ministry, the Inland China Mission exploded. And that ministry is still alive today. Because he learned to walk with God. Because Jesus is the way. 
And Jesus brings us to the Father and the Father to us. You need to learn to walk from that. Number four, we're almost done. Experience Jesus as the truth. Jesus as completely reliable. You need to experience Jesus as completely reliable. You need to know Him as the truth. He says He's the way. So we get the Father. He's the truth. He's completely reliable. You see, in order to do that, you have to put yourself in positions to have to know the reliability of Jesus when we obey His commands. If you never put yourself in a position to have to rely on Jesus, you're going to never know Him as the truth. If you play it safe, if you play it easy, if you play it familiar, you will never know the supernatural reality of Jesus Words and promises to you as His child. And my fear is that most of Western civilization doesn't know Jesus like this. We know Him perhaps mentally. We have the ideas. We have the doctrines. And you know what the Bible says? Demons believe like that and they tremble. But demons aren't saved. I think there's a lot of Westerners who have Jesus in their head, but they don't experience Him daily and walking with Him and putting all their eggs in His basket. Which means you have to sell out to Jesus. And you know what's sad for me this morning? I can't tell you how you specifically need to do that tomorrow morning, but I know who will. Holy Spirit will. Because Jesus said He will guide you into truth, remind you of everything I have said. He will be with you and He will be in you. And then He said, I and the Father will come to you. Meaning Holy Spirit is Father and Son with you. In other words, God will tell you what to do if you ask Him and you stop to listen. I, in the notes, I don't have time. I'm going to run out of time. I gave you examples from Matthew 6 to just go and read. Just quickly hit. I'm not going to read it. Matthew six twenty five to 34. You'll know verse 33, perhaps by heart. If you're raised in a church setting, it's a good memory verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Prior to that, Jesus said, don't go after food, don't go after clothing, don't go after drink. I'll take care of my people. Seek my kingdom, my rule over you. My rule over you, seek it first. And then I'll, I'll take care of those other things. You know what we're good at? We're good at seeking drink, food, and clothing first. And then we want Jesus to come along behind us and bless it. Aren't we? Listen, Jesus gets real, real practical. The problem with most of us is we have eggs that aren't in the basket just in case Jesus doesn't come through. And if the mentality is, Jesus might fail me, so I'm going to hold something back, guess what you'll never taste? You'll never taste the supernatural provision of Jesus. As long as you provide for yourself and deliver yourself and do all those things yourself and have that Western value of self-sustaining self-power, you will never know the supernatural power of Jesus to deliver you when you can't. Listen, this, this is a radical Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity that is not nominative. Nominative. I can't say nom. I've said nominative like five times. And people think, this guy's not educated. Did he graduate high school? Yes, I did. I went on. That type of Christianity, following Jesus like that, is radical. It's what we're going to talk about next week in abiding in Christ. It is the source of your life. It's where life happens. It's where supernatural life happens. Do you know Christians are supernaturalists? Do you know we're not naturalists? As a worldview, we're supernaturalists. We trust God to do the miraculous. And so much of our worldview, though, is naturalism. So we have in the genes of our thinking, in our minds, this idea of naturalism that there's something that depends completely and wholly on me. I'm the captain of my fate, the master of my soul. I determine my ends. And the Bible just doesn't present it that way. And until our eggs are all in Jesus' basket. We'll never taste what it is for God to be sovereign over the flight of arrows. You ever read Psalm 91? Oh, you need to know that one. 
See, when all of our eggs are in Jesus' basket, we know what it's like for Jesus to be sovereign over arrows, to be sovereign over diseases, to be sovereign over food, to be sovereign over timing, to be sovereign over who we meet, when we meet them, how we meet them, and His ends in so doing. And we'll tell you something, that kind of life is a ride, the like of which they can't make it. Disneyland or Six Flags. It's a complete joy and an adrenaline rush. And when you walk with Jesus that way, you get to experience Him as the truth. And finally, experience Jesus, number five, as the life. Life is more than mere physical existence. Life is physical existence. But it is more than physical existence. It is existence in the supernatural work of God. You see, I want you to learn to make decisions that have eternal payoff. Because you're listening to and obeying Jesus. Sometimes when we make eternal decisions, I want you to hear this, I want you to hear this well, there is no immediate gain. One of the reasons I like to cut grass, I love cutting grass, is because the very second you roll over that grass, you've got to cut your grass long. If you scalp your grass, you don't grow back right. But when you cut it long, it grows back nice and even. And even if it's long, it's even and doesn't look shaggy and bad. This is what happens when you do landscaping in Texas in the summers. You learn to cut grass right. So in graduate school, I cut a lot of grass. And so I cut my grass long, three inches, right? And so, but when I cut that grass, man, it's beautiful. In about two and a half hours, the Jolly Boys, we take care of an acre of grass and trees and hedges and stuff like that. And when it's done, there's instant gratification. I get the immediate results of the beauty of freshly cut grass, the smell of it. It's well manicured, looks nice, and like I feel like I did something. It's instant. In the kingdom, sometimes we invest and we don't see the results. It's an investment in eternity. Adoniram Judson spent seven years in Burma, modern-day Myanmar, before he saw a single convert. As a matter of fact, his agency almost brought him home because his ministry appeared fruitless. He lost a wife, buried multiple children. It was seven years before one. He spent time in prison. And all his translation work they found and burned. You know what his mentality was? I guess it wasn't good enough and the Lord wants me to start over. Do you live life like that? When tragedy strikes, are you like, God, where are you? Or are you like, yes, Lord, I receive it and I will do better. One of those is faith. One of those is faithlessness. You see... When you experience Jesus as life, you recognize, yes, life is physical existence, but it's more. <laughs> it's more than instant gratification. It's more than the grass looking good in the two and a half hours. It's sometimes a life poured out with nothing in return except that Jesus promised in the kingdom, I will get it back. Do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven, right? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? Jesus. In other words, following Jesus as the life means we make decisions that have eternal payoff, not necessarily immediate payoff. And you can make a list a mile long of all those activities and those things. But the reality is when you invest in Jesus, there is always gain. I'm going to close with this and then, then I'm, I'm done. I just, man, I just, for some reason this, this keeps coming to mind and I'll, I'm just going to say it to you, okay? Um, so I don't want you to hear like I'm begging you for money. We're good. God blesses our church. We have abundant resources. You look around and we just have money to do what God wants us to do. I mean, it's pretty awesome. So so the point of what I'm about to say isn't we need your we need we need money. It's not. It's just not, okay? But what I want you to hear is this truth that the prosperity gospel has pillaged and ripped off this whole idea of sowing and reaping. The Bible teaches sowing and reaping. You know that? 
It does. It teaches it. It's clear. Because God has so wired His world. It's just the way God created the world. That when we invest spiritually, materially, in all kinds of ways, with our labor, everything we put in, God gives return. And where the prosperity gospel has lied and, and ripped people off is that return is always in wealth. And it's often not. The truth is, the book of Hebrews teaches us that when we invest in the kingdom and all the ways we can invest in the kingdom, sometimes the harvest we get is righteousness. Meaning, some of you guys who can't get your eyes off the computer screen looking at foul things, the reason you can't is not because you don't have enough resources, tools, or accountability. It's because you're not investing in the kingdom. You're stingy. And your heart is to gather more and more and more and more and more and more. And there's no outlay of anything into the kingdom. And if the book of Hebrews is right, you want to get over that sin issue? Turn loose of everything and put all your eggs in Jesus' basket. And He might just release you from that sin. So I want you to hear, it's not about the money. It's about putting all your eggs in Jesus' basket. I run into people in our church, and, and, and because we don't say this, we never ask you to give. You can, you can count on two hands in 15 years when we've made an emphasis on giving. And it won't come up to ten. But God has blessed our church because you invest in the kingdom. And when you give to the kingdom, God graciously gives back righteousness. Sometimes He gives back resources. Sometimes He gives back just life. And Do you know you're a happy people? Do you know you love each other? Do you know it's so rare that you guys are in unity? We're unified? Isn't that crazy? 15 years and we we don't fight over nothing. There's, there's reasons because of investment. And I want to say to you, if you're not richly investing in the kingdom, money, time, and talent, you're not getting anything back. And you know, the reality is, if you want to taste Jesus as life, you need to invest in the kingdom. Listen to Proverbs eleven twenty four. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. You believe that? That's Solomon's observation of people who are generous and just have abundance. And then those who hold it back thinking they're going to keep their own abundance and they only suffer want. The reality for many of us, sin issues will go away if we'll get generous with God's resources. See, the key isn't another video series, another teaching, more accountability, another group to be part of. The key is be generous. Be a generous person. Be a giver. Be a giver of your time. Be a giver of your talents. Be a giver of your resources to the kingdom of God. And when you release all those things and put all your eggs in Jesus' basket, it's crazy the supernatural power Jesus will release over you and over our church. You know that? So I want to say to you, Three Rivers Church, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. And that has to have an outlay in our lives. So, this morning, if you haven't given and you signed that membership covenant, you're breaking a covenant. You're lying to God. You need to start giving. It's about your own fruitfulness, not about the money. God provides money. (laughs) He doesn't need your money. Just so you know. He said in the Psalms, the cattle on a thousand hills is mine. And if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. He doesn't need your money. It's not about the money. It is about your righteousness. It is about you sowing into the kingdom. It is about you trusting Jesus today. If you trust Jesus today, I promise you there's a harvest of righteousness and resources that He has for you to continue to pursue His kingdom. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Let me pray. Father, help us now. Uh, Help us to sing of the richness of Your grace. You've been good to us as a people. You've supplied us with everything we need. And uh, we want to be generous to You with the fruit of our lips, as the, as the writer of Hebrews says, the fruit of lips that praise Your name. So Lord, I pray now that, Holy Spirit, You will make us generous worshipers, that we will be generous singers, that we will be generous with our praise of You.
Lord, I pray even, even as we sing that you will put words in our mouth to reflect back up to you your worthiness and your greatness and your grandeur. I pray, God, that you would move in such a way that we would be liberal with our service to each other and our love for each other and our defending of each other and our care for each other. God, I pray that you would pour out over this fellowship generosity to our city and to our world. God, I pray that you would pour out over this fellowship a releasing of love for each other. Jesus, you are the centerpiece and we want to worship you as that this morning. So we pray that you would move in our hearts to enjoy you as that centerpiece. Pray you'd knock down any barrier to that. We need you to do that. We're dependent on you to do that. And we pray it would be to your glory for our joy.